This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? Hey. Hey, Nate. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you doing, Ron? I'm doing pretty good. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we talk about Ruby and often blend it with some other stuff. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Yeah, you blended with some React last time. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, you said you enjoyed you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I was very against it at first, but I actually like it now. Now, though, I am blending with Python. That is my, that's my new thing. We have a bunch of services that are written in Python and 2.7 or whatever the latest 2 dot version is end of life. And so I've been updating the services to Python 3 and learning far more Python than I ever cared to. How, how big are those? Are those like little one-off scripts or is it like a I full-on mean, app? It, no, they're just, they're small services. Some of them are lambdas. Some of them are just, you know, small mini apps that we stand up in like a Docker container and deploy to ECS. So yeah, I mean, it's not too bad, but for having not touched Python at all prior to this, yeah. Yeah, I haven't touched Python 3. I'm curious, what what kind of things are you in bumping into as you go from 2.7 to 3? Like, so far, like pretty trivial stuff. Parentheses after a print statement. I guess in Python 2, you could say print space whatever, or, you know, a variable that has your string in it. And in Python 3, you need the parentheses. Another one is inequality. So in Python 2, you could say like if a value and then have greater than, actually less than, greater than another value to say not equals. And in Python 3, it's bang equal. So things like that. There is a, there is a, a weird thing, and I don't know if it's inherently in Python itself or if it's just a decision that a library author chose, but we're using a JWT package. And in Python 2, when you encode the JWT, you get a string back. But in Python 3, you get bytes back, which I thought was a little strange because it, I mean, it, it, you can't just upgrade. You actually have to go in and specify that this thing is, you know, bytes and, that, and you, then you have to decode it. So that, I thought that was strange. I don't know if that's inherently, like I said, with the version upgrade or if the, the library authors just decided that, hey, in three, that's the way we're going to do it. So interesting. That almost seems like a bit of a leaky abstraction. Yeah. I spent actually the better part of two days trying to figure that one out. And it was just like, logged an issue somewhere on some Python package that, oh yeah, by the way, this returns something different. How is your debug experience with that? Are you, do you have tools similar to Pry that, that you've been working with? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's spin it up. See, fortunately, we have some pretty decent logging going on in these services. So, and there's a tool that, that points out some of uh, the stuff. There's like a two to three 
tool that uh, Python has that will go through and do some of the, like the inequality thing, the parentheses. It did not do the bytes thing because, again, that was seems more like a, a package deal than the actual uh, language version. But yeah, so I've just been spinning them up, spinning the containers up locally and seeing if it blows up and where it blows up and um, going through there. I'm sure there is good tooling, but I honestly was not expecting to have to like set up my environment to, to do actual Python <laughs> work. I was hoping I would just run this tool and push, <laughs> but it's requiring a little more than that. What editor are you using? I use Vim. Oh, oh man. I learned uh, Python in school and I learned like VBA and then some web, like HTML stuff. And then I learned Java and I did Java for a while, like from high school to college. And then college freshman year, they taught us Python and I really liked Python. And I'm telling you right now that PyCharm from JetBrains is like cream of the crop for developing in for developing Python, yeah. So, so here's here's the thing. So, those different IDEs, like if you use PyCharm and then you have to go work on a Ruby project, do you like close it and open Ruby Mine, or is there one IDE that you can use for multiple languages? I think there. I think the JetBrains IDE is like because it started in the Java space, right? And then they started expanding support for other languages, and you could pull those in as as essentially like add-ons to that the bigger IDE engine. And then I think that they found that there was a more profitable business model around targeting specific language niches, and and that's how they started to pivot and and promote their product. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the story is now. I think you could probably still buy the general like Java tool and just bolt on the Python support or the Ruby support or whatever. Yeah. It, well, I mean, and then the other problem is I only have 16 gigs of RAM on my laptop, and so I can't run like a JetBrains IDE and Chrome at the same time. Come on. Oh, you're still using <laughs> Chrome? That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and Docker. Oh, yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> The last time I developed Python, I just used VS Code. Yeah. I, I use, what is that? That COC language server deal? Like Conquer of Completion or something? It's a strange name, but it actually works pretty good. And any, any language that I have to work in now in Vim, I can just install the COC package for it. And that's what I did. And so I, I at least get some linting in Python now, which is all right. It is actually, it points out a lot of, you know, it pointed out a lot of stuff that I would have missed. So it's actually better than all right. Yeah, the COC package actually occasionally will glitch on my system and will leave like these artifacts from code complete on. Andrew actually got to experience that in a pair session not that long ago. Where uh, I actually, I don't know how to clear it up. So I had to kill them and then restart. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Fortunately, I haven't experienced that. What is your language server? package that you're using with it uh solar graph oh yeah i'm using that too interesting i'm using solar graph too but i use it in vs code and vs code has its own language server so i don't think you have to use solar graph but i've gotten solar graph configured to like a really nice degree the other day i was in an object or i was in a controller or something and i wanted to know the schema of one of the objects and i can just click on it or i know there's a 
there's a shortcut, I don't remember what it is, but you can click on the object and it will show you the schema for the object and it'll also show you all the instance methods on it. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, Microsoft is, is killing it with VS Code. I just haven't been able to leave my like muscle memory in Vim. I pick up the key bindings and stuff, but it's still, it's like, there's, it's just different enough where it's still annoying. Yeah, no, I, I, I went through that too. I actually did, tried to give VS Code a try because so many people rave about it. But yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't unvim myself even with the Vim key bindings there. And, you know, I have just so much time like invested in my, like getting Vim the way that I want it to be. So when I'm not in my, my configuration of Vim, I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to be here. Speaking of like editor configuration by way of news, there was a pretty recent post on dev two by our very own Andrew that kind of, outlines how he sets up VS Code for Ruby and Ruby on Rails development. I think it's gotten some traction and looks like a pretty good read. That's pretty cool. I think I should probably read that then. (laughs) It'll probably help. Because, yeah, that was one of the things that I ran into was just like where, where to begin, you know, installing all of these packages and configuring them. And I was like, yeah, I can just go back to them. Yeah, I slapped that post together because... I posted a tweet that was just, uh, it was supposed to be like the last thing I posted before closing my computer. And I was basically like, hey, if anyone would like to know how I set up Ruby and Rails development in VS Code, let me know because I could throw out a, a blog post about it. And I got so many replies within the next 10 minutes that I was like, screw it, I'm doing it right now. And it's definitely not like a hand holder, but I basically just dropped all... All the extensions I use, not all, all, but all the ones that are relevant really for general development and Rails. And then my settings files and key bindings and things like that. And it got way more traction than I thought considering I just slapped it together. But yeah, I I enjoy it. It's taken a while for me to get to this point, but I tried several editors in the beginning when I first started developing, I went, I did Adam first and Adam was just way too slow. It was so slow. And before that I had used like basically whatever the course I was in at the time told me to use for development. And in school we were using a JetBrains product for, I don't know if we were doing it for Python, but we definitely were for Java. And I used RubyMine for a little bit because I got a student. JetBrains offers like a really nice package if you're a student. So definitely if you're a student, take them up on this. If you're a student, you can register and get all the JetBrains products for free while you're in school. And so the very beginning of my Ruby career, I was using uh, RedMine. RedMine? RubyMine? It's RubyMine. Yeah, I think it's RubyMine. Yeah. So I was using that. The one thing that started to push me away from that, and I think they've since fixed this, but... I started working on a very, very old, humongous legacy code base during my first internship as a Rails developer. And the every time I would open up RubyMine, it would have to index everything. And it just took forever. So I started looking for alternatives. And that was right when VS Code started picking up a little steam. I think it started Ruby or VS Code right after, not too long after it released, like within the next year. And I've been rolling with that ever since. And I've tried Vim. I've tried, I've tried almost everything at this point, but VS Code is 
where I'm happy in it. Outside of Ruby, like I'm pretty sure you may be able to get a better experience for Ruby development in another uh, editor, but for front-end development, TypeScript, JavaScript, you're not getting anything better than VS Code. Cool. Yeah, I, I hear that is the case for front-end, for JavaScript. You know, yeah, pretty much VS Code is the winner on that one. I used Sublime back in the day when I stopped doing like VB stuff and I went from Sublime and I tried to go to Vim. And the first time, I mean, I didn't know anything about Vim. I just typed Vim in my terminal. And then I was like, what am I supposed to do here? And then I couldn't close it. I had to like open another terminal and kill the process. I, you know. <laughs> that's, I think that's a pretty common story. There's, there's some pretty funny memes about that. Yeah. And, and, and so I was like, no, forget this. I'm, I'm not doing that. And I went back to Sublime for a while. You know, Sublime was cool. And I tried Atom at one point. And, but yeah, I was at a conference, uh, some Ruby conference. I think it might have been Ancient City. And I saw people using Vim. And I was just like, oh my goodness, th- these people are like code gods. What are they doing? Like, you know, and I was like, all right, okay, I'm going to really actually try to learn Vim. And it was at that time I had a subscription to, um, what was was that Thoughtbot like course uh, platform? I think it was Thoughtbot that had it. It's Thoughtbot. It's on the edge of my tongue. Yeah, I think it was called Upcase. Yes. And yeah, this was back. I actually this was when you paid for it, and they had a lot of Vim like courses on there. And going through those, that's how I learned Vim and learned to configure it. And then like. Yeah, ever since then, I've not been able to move. I tried to move to uh, Space Max at one point, and Space Max was actually really nice, but like one of the packages would crash on me just enough for it to be not worth using. When it would crash, I mean, I would have to, like, it, it was game over. I would have to kill the process and everything. It was, you know, you know, it was, it was not a good, not a good experience. So, but what I did was when I went back to Vim after that, one thing that I liked about Space Max was that you could hit your leader key, which in Space Max is defaulted to space, and it would bring up a menu of all of the options that you could do. So if you had like a mapping that was like leader FF to open your like a control P type of function, you can hit space and then you would see F was like for file and you hit F and then it would open another menu and then said F again for, you know, open a file or whatever. And I found a package that does that in Vim. So now my configuration in Vim does that to where I can hit leader, which I've kept as space. And it has all like a, a interactive menu of all of my, my key mappings, which is pretty cool. There's a, there's a package, or I don't know what you guys call it over there in Vimland, but there's something called Space Vim, which sounds pretty similar. When I first started pairing with Nate, he tried to convince me to go to Vim, and I started a little bit, and then I was like, screw this. I was like, I can move just as fast as Nate in VS Code than as he can in Vim. Plus, I don't have whatever that annoying little box issue was that you had to quit all your sessions to get rid of. <laughs> I was going to say my path to Vim... When I first started Ruby, it was through uh, an IDE, an actual IDE called NetBeans. And because I had come from the Microsoft world and was used to Visual Studio, and it felt very natural just to drop right back into another IDE. But then I went from that into Sublime and from Sublime into Vim. And once you learn Vim, it's kind of like learning to play the piano or something. Like you're, the muscle memory, like 
becomes so strong that, I mean, I'll do commands and pair sessions. People will say, what, how do you do that? And I literally cannot explain it. Like, I don't even know what keys I've pressed. I have to like be very deliberate and, and kind of re- redo the command and go, oh yeah, that's, that's the sequence of keys. Right. Yeah. It just becomes a thing. Your body just kind of knows how to do it. And I don't know, Andrew, if you're using a mouse, I'm not sure that you could be faster than Nate. (laughs) I will just say that there is someone who I'm not sure is willing to go on record saying that I could, I can get around as fast as Nate. (laughs) I don't need to use the mouse. I've gotten into the point where I don't need to, but just like y'all have the muscle memory for only using the keyboard. There's some things that I'm like, I know in my head what the keyboard shortcut is, but I'm just so used to using the mouse that I don't know. It's time to it's time to go editor wars. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to have a face off. <laughs> dun dun dun. We can set it up like uh like a bracket. Like like the finals. Were you were you already doing uh Vim full time, Ron, when we met? Yeah, when I when I came to DMS, I had already started on my Vim. But yeah, pairing with you was another thing because that took me to like the next level, watching the stuff that you would do. And I'd be like, I, yeah, I was one of those guys that was like, hey, how'd you just do that? And he's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he's getting slower in his old age, Ron. I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm ready for the, the face off here. I don't know. Give oh. him a break. He's been in internals for a while, so. Oh, it's been a day. Give me a break. <laughs> Ron, I don't know if you've ever used it, but Nate and I have been using Tuple for pairing and we are big fans. Oh, does it work? I signed up for their, you know, hey, get notified when this is ready. And then when it was ready, it was like, hey, to try it out, just pay. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. I mean, because I don't pair that often except for with with Nate and we kind of had our own you know setup that we were doing actually today actually earlier or maybe sometime this week somebody in one of the slacks that I was in was asking about it because they were going to try it out I mean I'm sure it's 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 good I know I I would expect that it was good based on who's uh building it but yeah I just don't pair that often to make the investment into it Think back to our Screen Hero days when we use Screen Hero a lot. And it's it's that, but it's it's much better. Nice. Yeah, Screen Hero, even with the issues that it had, was still pretty awesome. Like, it had some stability issues, yeah, but it was great. And then they just took it from us. Yeah. I, I we, we, My CPU did go pretty high, although I had to take it off ludicrous mode, and I think it's okay now. But... <laughs> Yeah, isn't that the setting? The, the name of the setting, Andrew? <laughs> Wait a minute, they actually yeah, have that's a, it. a ludicrous mode in there? No, uh, Yeah, they have ludicrous mode. I keep mine on ludicrous mode. And I'm pretty sure, Nate, just, I'm pretty sure it only like dropped a little bit once you opened Chrome while we were on that pair session. So you have so Chrome, Slack, on. and Tuple in ludicrous mode. No. Yes, I, I'm going to put the blame on Chrome because it was fine before you opened Chrome. Chrome strikes again. Does does Tuple have a chat built in or do you have I don't, to keep Slack open? I don't, I don't think they have chat built in, but I don't, they might. Yeah, I can't, I don't, I, we haven't used it, but I don't know if they do or not. I don't know why I would need it though. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got the video, you've got the, I mean, you're already kind of doing dual control. You can do dual control. You can also draw on the other screen. You can kind of highlight where your cursor is. There's all sorts of little tools to help uh, programmers. It's really, it, it's not just another tool similar to Zoom. It's, it really is tailored to the developer. Cool. So I guess if you needed to like copy and paste a URL for your pair to check out or something, you could just <laughs> put it in the, in the editor. They have a built-in clipboard. So whenever I have like Nate and I'll be pairing and he'll be trying to figure something out and I'll be Googling. And then whenever I find the answer, I'll copy the URL and there's a button to paste it into the other person's clipboard. And if it's a link, and I'm not sure if this is like a, a Safari thing, or if this is just the way tool works. But if I paste Nate a link, it will automatically open that link in Safari. Yeah, I've, oh, I've wow. got mixed feelings about that feature. <laughs> I have not abused it yet. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 at first thought, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, oh, these guys have thought of everything. And then like, eh, that could become abusive. So It could, but if you have someone abusing that, you have other problems. It's not <laughs> right. the tool. <laughs> right. Well, it's yeah. nice because if it's like a code snippet, I can just paste it directly into his clipboard and he can just paste it directly into the code. They also have a dual mouse and a dual keyboard. So like I can like take control. I can basically put my own mouse on his screen and type while like he can be doing the same. That's really yeah, cool. I mean, the, the cur- my cursor will jump around at times. So you kind of, you still have to coordinate, but you know, you're on a voice call already. So Usually, I mean, it's how it's the ping pong nature of pairing, right? So you kind of communicate. Okay, why don't you take this and do that aspect of it, or or I'll I'll drive this and and do this other thing. I'm still not quite. I'm still getting used to like the the clipboard stuff. It's uh, I really do have mixed feelings about that, but it's really convenient. So the the other complaint, the only complaint I've got about it are the icons are a bit confusing. So if you want to turn on your video. They seem inverse from to me from what they should be. So I'm like, is my video running? I think it's running. And then I'll click it and I turn it off or vice versa. Oh, it's like it puts the, the icon with the slash through it to mean like if you want to turn it off, click it instead of like the slash meaning that it is already off. Yeah. Yes. But now, yeah, whatever it is, it's the, it's the opposite of my intuitive sense. I think the issue is really that two of the icons operate the way you think they will, but the mute icon operates the opposite. So they don't all work. There's like three icons and it's, it's like call or like mute your voice, mute your video. And there's one other thing, mute your audio, I think. And the audio one is inverse from the other two. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. It's the, it's just not consistent, but I mean, we don't have to use those buttons very often. So it's not like it's a very big, issue or problem right if that if that's the majority of your issue then that's you're doing pretty good i, don't know, I might i might check it out they do have a free trial oh they do oh do they have a yeah. free trial now okay cool yeah did we ever figure out if you can invite somebody to pair with you that's not a tuple existing tuple user so i was listening to art of product today and ben mentioned it again the thing that i had in mind where i said that i'm pretty sure we could do this and maybe we just need to like read the documentation on it. I'm sure it's like right there, but I'm pretty sure we can, but I, there's like limitations on what that other person can do. Yeah. I mean, that's fair, but 
Yeah. I mean, that seems like such a powerful marketing tool to just maybe, mm-hmm. even if you just gave somebody like five slots, you can put five people in your fave list or something and, and pair with those five people and they don't have to pay for Tuple to do it, but you have to initiate the session or something. I don't know. Right. I mean, even if it was just video and audio and no like remote control or something, at least, you know, the, the person who has the account has to do all the driving, but still. If it, we'll try it if you're available to pair Saturday. Okay. So we've been going for a while and we haven't talked about Ruby at all. So we were all talking about Ruby weekly, or at least Ron and I were. Nate, do you, do you read Ruby weekly? I get, a, I get several newsletters, but my email bo- inbox is just filled. So I typically go in and get all the automated emails and select them all and just archive. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my email pattern. <laughs> nice. Well, the way I fix that is by having like six emails, but we're not going to get into that right now. But Ron and I were reading Ruby Weekly, and one of the articles is on using materialized views in Rails. And I don't know what that means. So Nate started to explain this in our pre-call. So Nate, what is a materialized view? Because they were using Scenic for it, and I know we're using Scenic at CodeFund, but apparently it's not the same thing as just using uh, database views. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about a standard database view, which is what we're using at CodeFund, it's just sophisticated SQL query. And the cool thing about that is you can wrap an active record model around it and, and kind of fetch data out of that model, but hide all the, like the, the data complexity in the, in the SQL query. And Scenic makes managing the change sets to those SQL queries very easy. I haven't used Scenic yet for materialized views, but a materialized view differs from a typical or a traditional database view in the sense that it will run the query and then it copies that data into another table in the database. So the, the data is physically copied to a table if it's a materialized view, which is pretty fantastic because the data, like if you've got, you can index that materialized view differently than the tables because typically your query may join across like multiple tables and maybe even do computed columns and things like that. And then you can capture all that data and store it in another table and then index that table or index that materialized view so that when you come in with your like business intelligence needs, those queries start to run really fast if they're hitting the materialized view. You just have to be really thoughtful about when you, how often and when you push data into that materialized view. Yeah. The one thing that stood out to me and I I skimmed the article, I probably need to give it a good read, but they were saying that it's 450 milliseconds. They were showing a, an example query and they're like, this takes 450 milliseconds as a view and it takes five milliseconds as a materialized view, which is like 90x faster. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's essentially, it's a pretty common business intelligence, um, like ETL type tactic where you would just move data over, but you keep it all in the same database. That's pretty impressive. Have you used uh, materialized views, Ron? <laughs> Not at all. But that's pretty impressive. I wonder the that that ninety x does that hold true for large data sets or? Well, I think this was yeah. like a large data set. Yeah, often what you would do. So, like at CodeFund, we have uh, ad impressions that record right, and there's one record for every impression that occurs. And essentially, we need to roll that data up. So. We actually do that, but we don't use a materialized view for it. We're using some of the same type of strategies, but we roll that data up into another table. So we'll aggregate the entire day in a summary record and store that summary record. A materialized view would do something very similar. 
or could. I mean, it, it's really as flexible as SQL. I mean, whatever you want to pull over and extract into another table, the database has tools to make that a bit easier for you. And it sounds like Scenic may have kind of encapsulated that or wrapped it up and made it even nicer to work with in Ruby and Rails. Yeah. I will say when I was first looking at coming onto CodeFun, I went on one of the models and I saw raw SQL and I saw ARel. And I immediately started freaking out. And I was like, I can't, I don't know if I can do this. I was like, this is, this is above my head, but because I'd always heard, and I guess this is just from listening to the bike shed for so long when Sean and Derek were on it, but they were like, you know, ARL is private. So we can like rip this out from under you. And we're not under any obligation to, to call it out or to keep it consistent. So number one, that stuck out to me, but it works really well. And now even today I was like, all right, I need to do this thing. I was like, I think this might be better to do with ARL. But yeah, it was the first time I'd come into a Rails app and I'd been at my company before that I'd worked on probably like, there were like 15 Rails apps and I'd never seen ARL and I had never seen raw SQL in the model. Yeah. I mean, I try to keep as much as possible using ARL or RL or however you say it. Or Active Record itself, as opposed to like doing string interpolated. Like you, you don't want to. Like that's not a recommended practice if you're doing string, string interpolation because, or you know, concatenating your own queries because you open yourself up for SQL injection attacks and things like that. So if you can work directly with Active Record, that's preferred. Sometimes Active Record isn't powerful enough, so you need to drop down to the thing that it's built on top of, and then. Uh, you get some neat little facilities and can do some database-specific operations there. And then worst-case scenario, you can drop down to the SQL if you have to. Interpolating user input into your SQL queries? I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> oh, man. That reminds me. When I was in school, I took a PHP class. Actually, it was like a database class. It was a class about databases. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but had us using this website to practice like these SQL queries on or whatever. And I actually SQL injected the site <laughs> nice. and I turned to the teacher and I was like, can I have extra credit for this? Because I just didn't see, I just got into their database and she was like, no, and don't tell anyone. <laughs> Little Johnny <laughs> drop tables. I didn't, I didn't, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get malicious, but let's just say homework got a little bit easier. Nice. So I know you guys were talking about the newsletter and some other Ruby news. Is there anything else in the Ruby community that, that has happened since the last time we spoke that you guys are keeping an eye on? Rack 2.1 and 1.1 came out. I've been keeping my eye on that because there's something that Nate and I specifically need in that release for CodeFun and Rails 6. It's either going to be 6.1 or 6.0.3 is going to incorporate that fix we need. Basically, it's for the same site origin header or whatever in a request for Chrome. And the other thing is the RailsConf CFP is open for RailsConf 2020, which is in Portland. I know. What are you, what's your talk proposal? I have not created one yet. I, I wasn't thrilled on the, I don't know, the, the tracks this year didn't seem as great as they had in the past because like I have a couple ideas for talks and whether or not, like, I will be there regardless, whether CodeFund sends me, I pay for myself, or I somehow magically get selected as a speaker, I will be there. But the tracks this year weren't as great as I was hoping for, or at least some of the talks that I had in mind that I could give weren't going to really fit nicely into them. But, so what are, the, what are the tracks? Here, let me pull it up. I had a feeling you were going to ask that. <laughs> 
and I didn't pull it up first, but let's see here. It is creative communications, which is talks in this track will focus on creative ways to answer the following questions about bringing colleagues up to speed on your code or your entire system, things like that. Everything active support, exported expertise, what non-tech experiences have given you an experience or unexpected expertise in tech, identity and permissions. And this is basically about authorization is a lot more than just using device. And this track is about authorization topics, including introduction of the fundamentals of identity and permissions, specific implementations or security around authorization, memorable postmortems, mentoring for seniors, rails at scale, Rails Sans Active Record. And this is basically about apps that aren't Rails apps that are not using Active Record. And there's a, another track called Soft Skills Are Hard. Yeah. So you're, are, is it that you're looking for more of the, the, the technical meaty talks as opposed to the soft skills stuff? Well, if the talks that I had in mind just don't really fit in any of these, one of my old mentors had told me this, that RailsConf is a lot more soft skills related talks and that if you want to get really technical talks, that RubyConf is probably the better place to go. And now that I've been to both, I can definitely say that's true because RubyConf, you could get some really deep technical talks. And I went to some of them, which some of them were way over my head, but they were fascinating. And a lot of the RailsConf talks are more they're not as deep. They're not as meaty. It, it, it's almost more welcoming to beginners. Although when I was at RailsConf and you were, or RubyConf and you were too, Ron, right? So when they asked about how many people in there were new, or this was their first RubyConf, it was like 75%, 60%. It was a large amount of people in that room. Yeah, there was a lot of people that, yeah, that was their first uh, RubyConf. But the thing is that like, that was my first RubyConf, but I'm not exactly a beginner. So, right. I still consider myself a beginner, although Eric, who Nate and I work with, likes to say I'm a senior, which I'm like, no, no, it's not true. If your boss says you're a senior, man, you're a senior. Well, see, that's what I had in mind. I was like, I'll take the title, but I'm not going to label myself a senior when I'm talking to people. But some of these are really good. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm just not, I'm not interested in rails without active record. I'm not really interested in that track. So, well, I will go look at the sequel, Jim. It's, it's a really fantastic gem. It's by Jeremy Evans and it is a very cool, like it implements a lot of cool patterns and you can do a lot of really interesting things with it. And it, it metaprograms quite a bit of stuff and there's some really surprising and very cool behavior that it has and it's more performant yeah well i know some of the dry rb gems i think do some similar stuff like that and i've i've heard that i would probably pick out i'm sure i would go to some of the talks but it's just not i don't know it's not exactly what i'm looking for i guess is a good way to say some of these a lot of these tracks are not exactly what i'm looking for where in the past i have not been able to say that where i'm like okay there are several this track is like very much what I would be interested in learning more about. Um, there's just not as much as that this year, I think. So you should do a talk on the authorization track and we'll, we'll go through and, and revamp how we're using the perm gym to do authorization. Cause I've, I've been wanting to refactor that. We should do that. And then you can go talk about it. 
Oh, yay. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for this gift. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a plan. So, Nate, I have a question. What did you say that gem was? SQL? Yeah, it's spelled uh, S-E-Q-U-E-L. Have you used it? Just in like kind of the the smaller libraries, like you're talking about the Python scripts earlier in the show, little one-off Ruby scripts that do different things like that. I haven't actually ever used it inside of Rails, but I've used it in a Sinatra app and I've used it in little scripts that are kind of like little Lambda functions or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Because the thing that immediately comes to my mind is uh, going against like the Rails way. It's like, is this going to be a headache down the road? <laughs> you know, because it seems like almost without fail, whenever you don't do things the Rails way, you end up hating life at some point. I think, I think Active Model has mitigated a lot of that. They've made it a bit more flexible so you can swap out your database backend if you would prefer to use something different. Although I agree, I, I am a little wary of you know, making technical choices that differ from what the core team's doing. Right. I mean, not that I have like a special love for it. it just, life just seems to be easier when you drink the Kool-Aid. Well, I will say that the team I was on before did not go full rails way and I had a lot of pain and I just kind of assumed that pain was the way things were. And then when I joined code fun, Nate was like mouth to the cooler drinking the Kool-Aid and it has been so much nicer. And like, even today I was, I was trying to solve a problem and I was about to add like a new method to like one of our controllers. That's not like one of the basic crud. A non-restful method, essentially an RPC endpoint, which is bad. Don't, yes. don't ever do that. And <laughs> as soon as I started to type like the new thing into the controller, I was like, wait, this is not the Rails way. And I was like, Nate, I was like, I'm about to deviate from the golden path. I was like, steer me back. Do you guys have uh, like the linter set up to where if you have any public methods in the controller other than those seven, like it just breaks the build? No, but that's not <laughs> a bad idea. <laughs> no, but I don't think I would do that anyway. Well, I mean, other than if I want my other method that I'm going to add it eventually. But at this point, I figured out that whenever I feel that I need to deviate from the Rails path, that it's time to ask Nate what the correct way to do this thing is. Spin up a new resource. Yeah, it was going to be easy. It was going to be so quick, but there was a better way. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like if you're really doing it, uh, building a RESTful app, sometimes the correct way to implement it isn't the first thing you think of because you're like, I just need to invoke this method on this thing. So let me just add a function to or a method to an existing controller and then I can just set up a special route for that. and all of a sudden, if you, if you allow that, it's like the broken window theory. If that starts to permeate and, and spread across your app, that's when you find yourself six months later and you're in significant trouble because you've seriously de deviated from uh, RESTful. But it's just one time, man. Come on. Everybody's doing it. It's never one time. <laughs> it's like a drug. Once you get a little bit, they give it to you for free the first time. Yeah, just a taste. So did you keep that as a HTTP thing or did you use WebSockets to solve that problem? I used WebSockets to solve that problem. And I had working code within the next five minutes with this tool that 
is pretty, pretty cool. If no one's checked it out, it's called stimulus reflex. We got the conductor right here, Nate Hopkins. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can talk about stimulus reflex on the next show. Yeah, we we should. Yeah. I mean, just as a teaser, stimulus reflex allows you to keep this restful approach with your rails application and be very strict and adhere to the rails way. But those times when you do need to make essentially an RPC call or one-off function uh, call that may mutate state and modify the DOM, you can do it with stimulus reflex and it's, it's tiny. It's a tiny library and it, that you can build very complicated solutions with very little code. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll dig deeper into that next time. We'll have to talk about the TypeScript. <laughs> and Ron, yeah. I don't, I don't want to admit this to Nate, but if we're just going to pretend he's gone for a minute, Nate, Nate uses the word rest and RPC a lot in our conversations. And today was the first time I actually Googled, what does RPC even mean? <laughs> you were just smiling and nodding. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, sometimes he goes and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. RPC bad, rest good. And then I was like, you know what? I have no idea what RPC even means. Now, RPC is not bad if you're using it with stimulus reflex. <laughs> well, that's true. I have heard that the word on the street, but is I did not a, know what RPC was. Is that in the readme? RPC is not bad as long as you're using it with a stimulus reflex. I think, there, is a, I think there actually is a note on RPC. Like but just saying that it's, it, it's like RPC. You're essentially invoking a method on the server over a WebSocket using that you know, full duplex channel to, to communicate back and forth between the client and the server. And so the server can push data down, but it, well, I'll, I'm going to go into the whole next episode if I start talking about this thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to zip it for now and we'll talk about it next time. Yeah. Although here's another teaser for you, Ron. If you have a Rails form and there is a hidden field for the authenticity token of that form, the browser will automatically put focus on that hidden field, even though it's hidden, if you do a WebSocket refresh of that page. It actually is not putting focus on the hidden field. It just takes focus off of the element that had it and puts it on the body. Well, I think yeah. it tries to put it on the hidden field and then realizes it shouldn't do that and puts it back on the body. Yeah, it's really annoying. Yeah, <laughs> leave it at that. It's really annoying. <laughs> it took a long time to figure that out. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a TIO. Yeah. Ron, are you going to be at RailsConf? I don't know. Hopefully. Yeah, let's just say yeah. Well, I, just gonna, I like that answer. I'm, I'm uh-huh. going to be there. Oh, I'm going to be there. So if you guys uh, are going to be there, I got to be there too. Andrea, you talked about RPC, but you never defined it, did you? No, I didn't. Dang it. Every time I Google RPC, it tries (laughs) to take me to a stock page. Yeah. RPC is remote procedure call. When I read the, like the definition of it, I was like, okay, this, I understand now when Nate refers to this as RPC, but it didn't seem to be exactly the correct term for what you were referring to, but it basically, it has to do with like accessing a different address space on a remote procedure. I don't know. I still don't know what it is. The way I think about it is like, so remote procedure call, it's like calling a function remotely, right? So in the context of a Rails application, you have, you have an object that will send a message to another object, right? And that's calling a method on that object. 
in in context in in the context of a Rails app, a an endpoint can be used for that, right? So I have one application that I want to call a function in another application. I can just stand up an endpoint in a controller and have that endpoint call that uh, method on you know whatever object it is. And in that sense, it becomes a remote procedure call, right? But the problem with it is that you know, if we're just going to do that in controllers and, you know, it gets out of hand, right? Oh, every time I need one application or my front end to be able to just kind of call this method, I'm just going to set up a route and an action in a controller and remotely call that rather than going through a rest, you know, a restful route. Yeah. I mean, to, to give people a concrete example of that, like if you're, if you're contrasting in, in a single Rails app, imagine you've got a, a, like a React front end or something talking to a Rails API, and you have a feature similar to what's on Dev2 or Twitter or something where you can heart you know, an article or a post. Well, one way you could address that would be have a, like a hearts count on your post record. And you would set up an RPC method that says increment heart or increment like. And then you could just set up a route for that and call down but that's an RPC call down to with a special function that's hanging off of your post. A restful way to address that would be to stand up a restful resource that's essentially like post likes, and then the method would be create on it. So you can solve the same thing. The nice thing about doing it restful is your project retains a very predictable structure. And so you just go look for the noun. What's the entity that's being operated against and what CRUD operations are supported on it. There you go. Boom. He drops the mic. That's it. That's what it is. But I mean, so I'll, I'll give everybody a little bit of homework if, if they want to go learn a little bit about distributed Ruby DRB. It is uh, baked. It's like essentially remote procedure calls that are just baked into Ruby It is very, very cool, but it never really got a lot of traction, at least in the United States. I don't know if other regions of the world are, are using it more heavily. I think they are in Japan, but it is a really cool feature of the language and very underused one. If you wanted to see just a, a kind of an exploratory project that, that I built to, to use it, there's a gem called coin. So you can go to hopsoft slash coin and it's, it's essentially a cache that lives in it's a distributed hash that lives in another process outside of the main process that instantiates it. But you don't have to do any configuration or anything like that. But all the data is held in memory in a different process. And it's using distributed Ruby to do all of that. So it's, it's really cool. I was going to make a joke, but now I realize I, I don't know if this is actually funny. But Nate is like the Yosemite Sam of gems. I don't think that's right. There's my age. Uh, what? Wait, what's, nah. what, what's the logic behind this? <laughs> Isn't there some, there's some Looney Tunes character with the pickaxe, right? I'm just, uh, just going to go home. I'm going home. <laughs> That's it. That's it for me. <laughs> there's my age right there. Yeah. Yosemite Sam was the, like the gunslinger guy. Wow. The point of that terrible, terrible, awful joke that I will be probably dreaming about tonight is that every time I'm trying to figure out something in Code Fun, I'm like, where is this coming from? And it's just another gem that Nate has. <laughs> right. Yeah. The nice thing about all the gems that I do, though, is I don't think I've got any gems that 
exceed 2000 lines of code in the entire gym. So they're, no, they're easy stupidly to... small. It if doesn't you... even make sense to me. Yeah. If you go in and, and read the source of the gym, you can usually grok most of my gems in probably 15 minutes. And as someone who has read a lot of his gems, I can, I can say that's true. It's Nate gems all the way down. Yeah. His gems use his gems. Nate, last podcast, you said, and I quote, that you were going to tell us on this podcast what you were working on because Ron and I both talked about what we were working on. And you said, I'm going to leave this as a teaser for the next episode and not tell you what I'm working on. So here so, it's, it's time. Yeah. Apparently I'm the master of the teaser because what I've been oh, working no. on is stimulus reflex. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that next week. I've got a, I've got a funny story about my, my first official drink at a bar. I could give you that instead of what I'm working on. No, it's actually not really appropriate. It's, it, it's not an appropriate story. I can't do it on the podcast. I'll tell you after the show. Yeah, oh, well, wow. I, I have to know now. It's not appropriate. <laughs> right. If it's inappropriate now, I really want to know. Yeah. All right. Well, are we, are we good then so we can hear about this? Yeah. Subscribe to our Patreon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you want to hear Nate's crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. You just got to, you got to PayPal Ron $5. That's right. And Bitcoin. Oh, I take, I take ETH, honestly, yeah. personally. Yeah, get with well, the program, right. Ron. Come on. Oh, that's right. You guys are the Ethereum guys. My bad. Yeah. yeah. Then I want $6 I, in Ethereum. Ooh. All right. Yeah. So you heard it right here. If you want Nate's special story, you got to, you got to send Ron $6 in Ethereum. <laughs> Oh, is that it? I'm going to sign it. off now. I think that's it. Okay. Nate, Ron, it was a pleasure. It was. As usual. Good to chat with you guys. Yeah, see you guys later. See ya. see ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3 compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.